This is the Spring Research Project podcast where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub. And I'm Tiumir Sabchev, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Refugee Hub. Welcome everyone to the Spring Podcast. In this first episode, we will start unpacking the rather complicated Canadian Private Sponsorship of Refugees Program, and you'll hear us refer to this through the podcast as the PSR Program. So when you hear that, that's what we're talking about. As many of you probably know, the PSR Program is based on a partnership between the Canadian government and private sponsors. Canadians or permanent residents who support the settlement and integration of refugee newcomers for a period of usually one year. A less well-known fact, however, is that about half of all privately sponsored refugees who arrive to Canada every year, that's about 12,500 people, are supported by intermediary organisations known as Sponsorship Agreement Holders or SARS. Uh, And through the conversation, you might hear us mention SARS, and that's who we're talking about there. These sponsorship agreement holding organisations have played a crucial role in the establishment and consolidation of the PSR program in Canada. And today we have two very special guests with us who will help teach us more about the past, present and future of sponsorship agreement holders. And I will now let my co-host Tiho introduce them to you. Thank you, Eliza, and welcome everyone to the first episode of our podcast. Today, we are absolutely delighted to have with us not one, but actually two experts on the private sponsorship of refugees program. And what is even better, they bring to us both the practitioner and the academic perspective on the role of sponsorship agreement holders in refugee resettlement in Canada. First, we are happy to welcome Kaylee Perez, who has been working for one of the major SAS the Mennonite Central Committee, since 2015. Kaylee has a lot of on-the-ground experience working with sponsors and sponsored refugees. Last year, she also became the new co-chair of the SAC Council, which represents all sponsorship agreement holders in Canada. Hi Kaylee, and thank you for being with us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. We are also delighted to have with us Dr. Jeffrey Cameron, who is a research associate at the Global Migration Lab, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, as well as an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at McMaster University. Last year, Dr. Cameron published a fascinating book on the development of refugee resettlement policy in the United States and Canada, titled Send Them Here, Religion, Politics and Refugee Resettlement in North America. He's also co-editor of another very important book on refugee sponsorship titled Strangers to Neighbors, Refugee Sponsorship in Context. Welcome, Jeff, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Hi to you and Eliza. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome, Kaylee, and welcome, Jeff. I'm so pleased to, to have you with us this afternoon. Um, Kaylee, we'd like to start with you. Um, I was hoping you could tell our listeners what sponsorship agreement holders are, sort of at a high level, and what their role is in the private sponsorship of refugees program. 
Thanks so much, Eliza and Tio. It's great to be here with you. Um, and I'm so excited to get to talk a little bit more about the private sponsorship program. It's a really powerful program that I think is what's needed to change the world. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited to get to talk a little bit more about the role sponsorship agreement holders play. So to be a sponsorship agreement holder or a SAW, as I'll refer to it, for short, as we continue, um, you have to be an incorporated organization, legal entity for at least two years, uh, be physically located in Canada, and be interested in and capable of sponsoring more than five refugees or five refugee families per year. Um, that's basically the, the baseline standard as an organization of, of how you need to operate. Um, but you also have to have resources and a support network to be able to operate as an effective SAW, which basically means that you have access to financial resources, training, some previous experience in sponsoring, um, and the infrastructure to support multiple sponsorship groups or sponsorships, and really to have a bit of a, a risk management plan or contingency plan for when things don't go as expected. In terms of the role that sponsorship agreement holders play, we, we play this role of community engagement or volunteer coordinators. We also are involved in providing education and training to the sponsors that we work with. We provide settlement support to the, the, the sponsors and the refugees who are resettled to Canada. And as I also mentioned, we provide this, this protection and, and risk management role through providing oversight and monitoring of the sponsorships that we undertake. I would also add that SAWS in Canada are encouraged to become members of Canada's Refugee Sponsorship Agreement Holders Association, or the SAW Association for short. Um, it's an association that started in 2009 and today represents 90% of SAWS in Canada. And the association really exists to increase cohesion within the diverse SAW community and to develop a, a common national perspective and voice for the PSR program. The association leadership team, which is comprised of a staff body called the Navigation Unit and eight elected council members, we work to build bridges of understanding among SAW members as well as with the Department of Immigration, IRCC for short, uh, here in Canada, as well as external partners uh, to, to collaborate on the successful operation of the PSR program. And as an association, we also are involved in supporting training, promoting awareness of, of the program. Uh, we're currently running some knowledge exchange sessions and developing communities of practice where SAWS can uh, more intentionally connect with one another and share tools and resources that they're developing. All of this really with the goal of further developing and enhancing the private sponsorship program to maximize its potential. Thanks so much, Kelly, for this introduction. I would definitely like to return to you and discuss the role of sponsorship agreement holders nowadays. But before that, I want to go to Jeffrey, who has conducted some really important historical research on the role of religious groups in the development of refugee resettlement in Canada. So Jeff, in your book, Send Them Here, you bring your readers back to the post-war period and you show that the precursor of the private sponsorship of refugees program can be found in some refugee sponsorship initiatives that developed back then. 
Could you tell us more about your research and the way your findings relate to our discussion today on sponsorship agreement holders? Yeah, thanks again for, for the invitation to participate in this conversation, Tio and Eliza. And it's it's a pleasure to be joined by Kaylee as well. You mentioned uh, one of the, a book that I edited with um, with my friend and colleague Shauna Labman at the beginning, and Kaylee was also a contributor to that volume. So you can read uh, you can read her work there too. You know, the Mennonite Central Committee that Kaylee represents is a you know plays an important role in uh, the history of Canada's uh, sponsorship uh, private sponsorship program. It's most well known for actually engaging in co-creation of the sponsorship agreement holder system that we know today uh, back in the, the late 1970s. And that's a really important landmark in terms of the formal development of the program that, we, that, that operates today. But it has some interesting precursors. So as you mentioned, uh, Tio, the, the book that I recently published, Send Them Here, uh, focuses on what some of those precursors were. You know, after the Second World War, uh, one of the big global policy challenges for the Allied powers after the war was what to do with refugees in, in Europe. It was a big question, and this, this question was made even more challenging by the fact that a lot of Western countries had, you know, effectively zero immigration policies. I mean, these, there were uh, significant racial and ethnic restrictions on immigration. Canada uh, had seen kind of net emigration uh, in, you know, preceding decades. So this is a this is a significant challenge, what to do with refugees in the context of, you know, potential receiving countries that weren't admitting immigrants, and Canada, you know, eventually after a number of years, uh, became one of the major destination countries for refugees from Europe, and and part of its its response was twofold. On the one hand, there was a labor program which was managed by business, and then there was a family reunification program that at first was a failure. Um, until until religious a number of religious groups stepped in and offered to assist with the implementation of that program, and as as family reunification uh, was completed, the program turned into a, a sponsorship program for co-religionists, uh, which which then later evolved into a broader private sponsorship program, in in the preceding years. And as a number of Cold War refugee crises emerged in subsequent decades. The government again turned repeatedly to to religious groups to to partner on programs that could bring refugees to Canada. So the one of the challenges early on with the program was what is the nature of the relationship between sponsorship groups and the government? Uh, what are sponsorship groups responsible for, and what's the government responsible for? How much should should sponsorship agreement holders pay to resettle refugees? How long are they responsible? for the care refugees, what kind of social services do the gov- does the government have to provide? And how do we ensure that states themselves do not offload all of their responsibilities onto, onto private groups? So these questions were kind of at the center of you know, these, these more internal policy discussions, negotiations between often bureaucrats and religious groups in the 1950s and 1960s. And, and I think a lot of those questions still animate uh, the dialogue between uh, sponsorship agreement holder groups and the government today. Thank you, Jeff. One of the things that surprised me and also impressed me in your work is the fact that in those years, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the work of these religious groups was often done in the context of very negative attitudes towards immigrants and refugees in Canada. 
And I wanted to ask you from this perspective, what was the role of the religious groups and their leaders in convincing ordinary Canadians to join the resettlement efforts of the government and establish some early models of private sponsorship? Yeah, it's a good question. If you look at if you look at opinion polling in those early years, um, you know, in contrast to today, I think today, uh, you know, the the preponderant like public opinion is quite supportive of Canada's refugee resettlement program today. Um, but at the time, it was if you were to look at survey results, quite opposed from the if you were to look at the majority of the population of Canada. So, so then, how did Canada get the program that it has? So, but part of the reason was because these were kind of uh, sheltered negotiations and conversations between bureaucrats in government and representatives of, of religious groups who shared a common concern, which was uh, how is Canada going to contribute to this global policy issue? Uh, how is it going to do it in a way that facilitates integration into Canadian society? And the reason they were talking to religious groups was for a number, for, there were a number of reasons. At first, it was because religious groups had uh, these family connections that the government itself was unable to facilitate, um, often through through personal and and uh, community networks, and then later on, you know, religious groups stayed involved in sponsorship work for a number of reasons. Many religious groups have histories of persecution that kind of expand their or make them especially sensitive sensitive to and uh, receptive to the humanitarian dimension of uh, refu- the, the need for refugee protection. Of course, many religious traditions have also theological uh, reasons for wanting to contribute to refugee protection that arise from a kind of moral universalism. Um, there's a kind of, there are social networks that religious groups have that, by virtue of a history of missionary work, often connect them to other countries. So for, for all those reasons, the ethical, the moral, the theological, and the sociological, you know, Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish groups early on were some of the primary spokespeople who were advocating on behalf of refugees in Canada. And often they knew they couldn't make that case successfully in the public sphere, so instead they often turned to conversations with bureaucrats, which if you look at how policymaking happens in Canada, this is a dynamic that is not confined to refugee policymaking, that that, uh, a lot of policymaking in Canada happens through uh, through discussion between uh, advocacy groups and uh, and public servants. On this last point and the discussions between civil servants and religious groups back then, I really like the concept reluctant partnership that you have developed in your book. Could you please explain to our listeners what this reluctant partnership was and how it led eventually to the establishment of the private sponsorship of refugees program in the end of the 1970s. I've called it a reluctant partnership for a couple of reasons. One of, one of them is that uh, one side of the reluctance were the religious groups themselves early on. Um, reluctance to assume so much responsibility uh, financially, often case, in a condition of uncertainty uh, about the risks they were taking in doing so in, in the process of, of sponsorship. Uh, and then the, the reluctance was also at the level of, of gov- government officials early on in the 40s and 50s, where government officials at that time, you know, immigration managers saw themselves as being the gatekeepers, uh, protecting the Canadian culture and society and economy. They were concerned that often, you know, because, because religious groups were, 
were involved in, in paying part of the cost of bringing refugees to Canada, they also wanted to be involved in selecting them. And there was a lot of protest at the operational level, you know, even at the field level overseas, that all well, these religious groups were coming in and the, the refugees they were selecting were not the best ones for the Canadian economy. They were often the elderly, the frail, uh, and those who really wouldn't be much use at all uh, to Canada's growing, growing economy in the post-war period. And so, you know, in the historical record, there are these repeated memos that go back and forth from the field level up to the, the, the deputy minister's office saying, we have to end this program. It's a, it's a disaster. Look at the people they're selecting to come to Canada. And, and, uh, but the government actually needed the religious groups to carry out its refugee commitments because it didn't have the, the capacity to do so on its own. And so in the, the late 1950s, the program was ended for a couple of years. Finally, there was a new, there was a new minister and she uh, didn't know, I think, very much about the file. And so she finally gave in to what she, uh, her deputy minister was advising, which was to end the program. And within two years, she realized that, in fact, the government needed this program and revived it in 1960 in the context of World Refugee Year, calling it for the first time a private sponsorship program. So the, the, the reluctance uh, in this reluctant partnership, you know, has to do with both the, the trust, a kind of reluctant trust that the sponsorship groups have had, that the government will provide them the support that they need to carry out their, their work, uh, and also on the side of the government that the sponsoring groups themselves will, will identify you know, uh, refugees at that time who would be uh, active contributors to, to Canada's uh, economy especially. Thanks so much, Jeff. Um, I have to say, I read your book when it came out and I was so interested. I'm a history tragic, so I loved reading the combination of the policy aspects of you know, going back through all of that back and forth between civil society, what was early as a civil society, religious civil society, and the impact it had on government was just fascinating. Coming full circle now back to the present, and I, Kaylee, I wanted to ask you about the SAR community today, sort of building on the fantastic historic background that Jeff's taken us through. One of the things we're really interested in the project is looking at how diverse the SAR community is now and how it's changed over time from primarily, not always, but primarily religious organizations that we've been talking about into a more diverse field of organizations working as SARS. I know you have a lot of background and, and firsthand expertise on this, so I'd love it if you could talk us through the gradual diversification of the sector and explain to us what it looks like today in terms of who are SARS. Yeah, thanks. And also wanted to echo thanks to to Jeff for all that you've shared. I haven't had a chance yet to read your book, but I am excited to because it's really interesting hearing just how uh, relevant conversations that were taking place historically about um, the reluctant partnership, the the sponsor, the stranger versus the uh, family reunification and the power of naming and what is the role of SAWS and government and that the private sponsorship program really facilitates, um, it, it, it really relies on and facilitates a powerful government civil society partnership. And how do we, how do we make that work in an efficient and effective and accessible way? 
So I'm excited to read your book. <laughs> um, but wanted to, so to your question, Eliza, about um, the, the diversification of the saw sector and, and who are saws today. So we've, we've grown and diversified over the years. Um, specific data on our evolution over the years in terms of who we've identified as, as organizations is a bit tricky to find. And I think it speaks to just the, the grassroots reality of how we've existed as organizations as and as an association over the years. But we do have some good uh, recent data, um, and that's thanks to the growth of, of our capacity recently. But so of the 130 saws in our association uh, today, 60% identify as faith-based, so still operating a majority of faith-based organizations. 34% identify as humanitarian in their mission and, and vision, and 22% um, identify as having a single population refugee focus. Um, and some of those single populations include uh, SAWs who focus on sponsoring Eritreans, Ethiopians, Iraqis, Syrians, Afghans, Iranians, and the LGBTQ plus population. 14% identify as settlement providing organizations, which I think is a very interesting dynamic. Settlement providing organizations in Canada facilitate the settlement support of other refugee and immigrant streams of entry, sometimes receive government funding. And so it's interesting to see an emergence of these organizations come into the private sponsorship space and add that as a, as a program that they, that they are involved in. Um, and then 6% identify as international development agencies. So that's uh, a bit about who we are. Um, another in interesting statistic is the number of years that SAWs within our association have existed. So there are 34 SAWs who have existed for more than 30 years, 30 who have existed for between 15 to 30 years. So a significant portion of our association is mature and has been doing this for a very long time. We have 23 saws who are between three to five years old, which I think is interesting be because that connects to the, the response to the Syrian crisis and the growth that our saw association experienced shortly after that response and new saws coming into being as a result of that. And then we have 11 who are just under two years old. So interesting dynamics there. In terms of where saws are located and where they operate, 60% operate in both large urban and rural areas within Canada. 34% are just operating within urban centers and 5% only within rural communities. Um, so the majority are in both spaces. In terms of who we work with um, and who we partner with, as we as we sponsor. So it's an interesting dynamic. 72% of SAWs work with co-sponsor individuals. Um, so this can mean that the SAW as an organization is directly involved in carrying out the financial and settlement support directly to the newcomers with at least one person who they name as a co-sponsor. And what we know about this anecdotally is that most often that that co-sponsor is a relative of the refugee individual or family who's being sponsored. And I think that speaks to the, the reality that a majority of the sponsorships that SAWS facilitate 
do have this family linked or relational tie of of sponsorship between the sponsor and the refugee being resettled. 57% of SAWs work with constituent groups or, or sponsorship groups. So the SAW basically plays the role of overseeing multiple sponsorship groups who take on the direct settlement and financial responsibilities. 48% work with both co-sponsors and constituent groups or sponsorship groups. And then 21% work directly to resettle refugees without working with co-sponsors or constituent groups. So that's a bit about the dynamics of who we work with. Um, and then who we sponsor, uh, which I was I was mentioning. So a majority of SAWs engage primarily in the named sponsorship stream, uh, where they sponsor refugees with pre-existing relational links or ties to Canada. 35% engage equally in both streams of the named sponsorship stream, but also in what we call sponsor the stranger type sponsorships, which could be through the blended visa office referred program or through the joint assistance sponsorship program, uh, where essentially the cases are referred by the UNHCR or the Canadian government, and then SAWs go out and look for sponsors to take on those cases. Yeah, I think that's that's a bit about the, the diversity of who we are and, and how we currently operate. That's fantastic, Kaylee. Those statistics are amazing. Um, you're not wrong. It's been difficult for us and for other researchers to get those type of granular statistics about the kind of work that SARS do. So incredibly valuable. Thank you for, for sharing that. It feels, I mean, listening to you and, and knowing a bit about the sector, I was surprised by some of the, the diversity of things that say one SAR might do, for example, being a settlement providing organization, directly sponsoring, supporting constituent groups, working through the named and the sponsor of a stranger program. You know, it's that that's a number of different roles to play in quite a complex sector. I'd love to get your take on the significance of the role of SARS in refugee resettlement today in Canada, perhaps more broadly than the sponsorship program, you know, thinking both from a policy perspective and a programmatic perspective, how important is it is the work that SARS do? Yeah, thanks for this question. I think that SARS play a really, a really critical role in supporting the, the sustainability and the strength of this program. As, as we've spoken about, SAWs really work it with a diverse community base across the country um, and are involved in community engagement at the local level, are part of large networks within Canada, and, and really facilitate these powerful local relationship building components of this program um, that are transformative. And I think that's at the core of, of the strength of this program. Um, and I think this is where real change happens and where fear of the other is broken down. And that is what impacts large scale public opinion on refugee resettlement, as we've shared. Um, and so SAWs play this critical role of really supporting that local relationship building in a sustainable and strong way um, to support the user experience, I think, for both sponsors and also refugees who are being resettled here. SAWs play this, this bridge building role between uh, IRCC and the community. Um, as we've spoken about, we, we hold as SAWs risk management responsibility and 
We also help make a complicated program accessible to sponsors. So we we act as that bridge. Um, and I would say that that role of, of being that bridge of holding risk management and also making this program accessible in recent years um, has become a bit more challenging. And I can speak a little bit to some of the, the key topics that we're engaging in with our government right now shortly. But um that kind of leads to the role that the SAW Association plays um, in in representing the needs and working with government before government and working with IRCC to strengthen the the policy and the operations of um, the private sponsorship program. And so, one of the avenues through which SAWs engage in that in a meaningful way is through what's called the NGO Government Committee. Um, and this is a committee that basically is co-chaired by myself and a representative from the IRCC department. And it's a space where we talk about key policy and operational needs, realities, issues, and, and really work together to identify solutions for, for, for the private sponsorship program. This committee was established in 1994. And it started with the election of six SAW representatives um, to participate within that space. We are now eight elected SAW council members um, who sit at this table with representatives from government. And I think what's interesting, too, is that the NGO government committee actually predates the existence of the SAW Association. So from from the early stages, um, a need to engage with government was identified as being a priority. And again, I think that speaks to the reality that this private sponsorship program both relies on and facilitates a really powerful government civil society partnership. And so basically uh, the way that it works is our association elects uh, a council. We have a staff body called the navigation unit. The council co-chairs the NGO government committee with IRCC. We discuss policy and practice. We convene about four times a year. Um, And it's an important space where um, trust is important to be able to have real meaningful dialogue that leads to meaningful and good change. And so it's a it's a space where we are really focused on working to find solutions and trying to do that in strategic ways as well as in efficient ways. And as our association has grown in in size but also diversity, the work of representing the SAW Association in one voice has has become a joy and a challenge. <laughs> um, and so we've are, are thankful. So part of part of how we operate is we have a staff body that's not now called the navigation unit that is actually funded by IRCC. And that navigation unit body really helps us be able to coordinate, collect and and seek out the the input in an accessible way of a very diverse association and prioritize that so that we are doing uh, a, an effective way of representing the needs of our association before IRCC. Um, some of the key topics that we're currently discussing are around uh, program integrity. So our, our program has grown significantly post the response to the Syrian surge. As a result of that, risk management conversations have become a lot more prevalent. That's a uh, 
a, a strong, uh, important reality that our government has been very engaged in, in discussions about as a result of our growth. And that has uh, strained the relationship between IRCC and the SAW Association over the past few years. And Jeff, hearing you talk about the reluctant partnership, there's a lot of those dynamics that have arisen uh, over the past few years as we've essentially been engaging in conversations with IRCC on how do we create a, a balanced program that protects refugees but also continues being accessible to community um, and to those who need it most. So program integrity matters, of course, but how do we do it in a way that is um, enables the grassroots relational reality of how this program operates on the ground to continue? So we are also right now very much engaged in conversations on reviewing the foundations of who we are. As IRCC has sought to build what's called the the program integrity framework, which is essentially a new process through which SAWs are going to need to be revalidated and basically submit a, a form to IRCC to demonstrate why they have sufficient governance, oversight, monitoring practices to continue doing the work that they're doing. IRCC has realized that there are a lot of diverse dynamics of how this program operates on the ground. Um, and a key voice that that council has brought in these discussions is there's no one size fits all model for this. We've, we've got to keep it flexible. But the, re, reviewing the foundations of who are we and how do we operate and through that conversations around this difference between sponsor the stranger versus family linked and how that practically looks like on the ground is something that we, we are right now in the midst of grappling with as it comes to reviewing policy and adapting operations. We're also talking about SAW capacity and sustainability. What are the, the structures, the funding models that need to come into existence for SAWs to be able to exist and continue operating under this new program integrity framework and through the, the size and scale of our work. Right now, the private sponsorship program resettles more refugees than government-sponsored refugees in Canada. And so as we continue to grow, which is definitely something our association wants to continue supporting, we need to identify what are the sustainable structures that will enable the health of of us as organizations, but also the program for us to sustainably grow. The COVID impact is uh, something that we're in the midst of processing, uh, basically with very few arrivals as a result of, of the system-wide impact of COVID. There is now a historic backlog of over 70,000 refugees whose cases are currently in process. Um, and this is this takes a human toll on, on the refugees overseas, their lives being at risk. Um, it, while their cases can take upwards of three years to be processed, this also takes a toll in terms of keeping sponsors engaged, funding up to date, um, and just the logistics of how to manage a backlog system is, is very complicated. So we're having conversations around efficiency, how to address this backlog, and then um, as well as the, the responses to, to Afghanistan and to Ukraine. 
and and really conversations about an emergency response framework and um, how do we get better at at responding to emergencies and what is the role of the private sponsorship program in an emergency response. Um, we, we definitely carry the strength of community engagement and mobilization, um, but how do we take surge moments um, and, and use them to build infrastructure for sustainability? Uh, that's definitely something we're, we're in the midst of discussing um, and equity really that um, when an emergency response framework focuses on one particular population and we have a backlog system with refugees who are in just as much need as others, how do we make sure that we are strengthening the emergency response principles that ground equitable responses and that emergency responses should not come at the cost of other refugees who are in just as much need, uh, which connects to the strategic use of resettlement. So these are a lot of <laughs> big conversations we're in the midst of engaging in right now, but just we are grateful to have the strength of, of an infrastructure, of a network of this NGO government committee space where we can engage in effective policy and operational conversations with, with IRCC. Thanks so much um, for that answer and explanation. Particularly helpful, I think, um, for our listeners to, to for you to unpack the, the way that the SARC Association interacts with IRCC um, in, in a positive way, but in also in a forward-looking way. I know that's of a lot of interest to other countries looking to build out sponsorship framework and networks is how to do how to manage that relationship in a positive way that sort of achieves programmatic outcomes. And I think maybe a question for, for, for both you, Jeff and Kaylee, but maybe quickly beginning with you, Kaylee, and you've talked to this already a, a little, I think, but what are your reflections and predictions for the future of the SAR framework in Canada? Would love to hear you on that. Mm, thanks for that. Um, I think we are going to continue to grow. Um, an interesting um, dynamic that's arisen is just this year, we've seen a record high number of organizations apply to become sponsorship agreement holders. So there were 74 organizations who applied this year to become sponsorship agreement holders. We have not seen that large of an interest before. And I think that speaks to um, the future of this program. There's going to continue to be significant interest and need. And what we know is of those 74 organizations, Eight have been approved so far. So we're, we're still learning a little bit more about who these eight organizations are. But what, we, what we're seeing in terms of trends is they do tend to have more of a single population focus. Um, so there's interest right now specifically for Eritrean and Oromo communities as well as uh, Afghan communities. Five of the eight are settlement providing organizations. So that's interesting to see that there's a bit of a growth in interest there again from the uh, settlement providing organization community. And half of them are founded by people with lived refugee experience. Um, so we are seeing a, a growth of um, diaspora communities really wanting to engage and support the needs of their particular communities. Um, and I think that is very much the growth that we're going to continue seeing and also speaks to the dynamic that this program really does predominantly facilitate the resettlement of, of the named stream is the resettlement of refugees who have pre-existing relational links 
to sponsors in Canada. And that is a dynamic that we need to go deeper in understanding. We call it family links. I think we've got to figure out a better way of articulating that. There are issues with how we, the limited understanding of how we in North America, Canada, and particularly in particular define family that is that is limiting. And so, yeah, I think we need better language. Jeff, maybe you can work at that <laughs> for us. Um, but basically, yeah, I think equity is a, a big issue that we're going to need to continue tackling as an association, both equity in in processing of who is getting sponsored and how and um, equity across the system in how cases are being prioritized for processing, Um, equity in terms of access to the program, how do we make sure that diaspora communities who often themselves are newcomers, who um, having the financial means can be a barrier. How do we make sure that they continue to be able to access this program? I think anti-oppression policymaking um, is something that we are going to need to grow in our strategy and understanding of as we think about um, the importance of really understanding how this program works before creating and updating changes to policy and practice. What we've seen over the past few years is because of the rapid growth um, and because of our government's basically putting on the risk management hat harder (laughs) than they have before. Um, There have been policies and procedures created that we fear will, will create more barriers for those who need it most because there hasn't been adequate time placed to do the research to really understand the community dynamics on the ground that make this program work. So we want to see a lot more research and understanding happen at that at that level. I think sustainability, we really are, as I mentioned, we, we with these past surge moments, we want to take learning from Syria, from Afghanistan, of how do we use these moments to think about the sustainable structures and our saw capacity to be able to grow in a healthy and sustainable way. And last point I'll make is we are really excited about this global community that is being formed as countries around the world begin to um, implement and grow their own versions of this program. We really hope to be able to stay connected to this global community to learn from what other countries are experiencing, to be able to share tools and resources and really keep each other inspired and motivated. I think it's easy to to just focus on our day-to-day and get bogged down by our reality. Um, And the past three years have been challenging for many of us. Um, I think a lot of our our SAW representatives have this like baseline level of fatigue, just trying to figure out how do we how do we keep going? And I think um, I'm excited about what a global community of practice could do to foster inspiration and and motivate again a really powerful group of motivated individuals who care about refugees and who want to see our Canadian society transform and continue to be committed to resettling refugees um, to our country. So, yeah, I'm excited about the future of this program. Yeah, I think that that was very insightful, everything that Kaylee just said. And maybe just to uh, extend a bit on some of the themes that she mentioned, and these maybe are less, less predictions than then reflections as you invited them at the beginning. 
I think it's important to remember that that this program in Canada has always been demand driven by civil society. Like it's been, it's it is it developed in response to an offer of assistance from a number of religious groups in the post-war period. It was consolidated in the context of the response of the Mennonite Central Committee to the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis and their knowledge that in the 1976 Immigration Act there was this sentence, this like provision for private sponsorship that no, nobody knew what it meant, but it was the offer of the Mennonite Central Committee to work out with the government what it could mean that then became replicated, um, you know, now to more than 100 groups, as Kaylee mentioned. So so this is a this is a program that has is grown from a demand from civil society and an important aspect of it is one that Kaylee mentioned which is naming right it's the it's part of this part of this this uh, agreement between the government and these these uh, sponsoring groups is that sponsoring groups will be allowed to play a part in selecting which refugees are going to come to Canada and that's a uh, a power that states are very reluctant to share. I say this as a, as a political scientist. States do not like to share power around selecting who's part of their political community. And Canada has given, has shared this power with, um, with sponsoring groups. And it's actually it is an, it's a strength of the program, uh, in in the sense that for the reasons that Kaylee mentioned, that it allows, you know, these kind of affinities people have, whether they be on the basis of a shared experience of persecution, a common nationality, a common religion, some other shared identity, family ties of some kind, sometimes tenuous family ties, all the, these forms of connection that, uh, that Canadians have around the world are, you know, they, they, might, they might appear to compromise the neutrality of the program, um, but, they, but they actually provide important connections that, that, uh, that facilitate uh, effective resettlement at, at this end. Um, I mean, the challenge of global refugee policy is, is vast. I don't think we can underestimate it. And it's a problem that will not be resolved through resettlement programs. Resettlement programs play a role, and we should be looking at every opportunity to maximize how many refugees can come to Canada through resettlement, understanding that it will be a fraction of a fraction of those who require protection internationally. And I think the best way that Canada can maximize its resettlement capacity is by taking advantage of these ties that Canadians have internationally through uh, all the different kinds of connections and affinities that Kaylee mentioned. And so I think there's another, this connects to another really important dimension, which is public support for Canada's resettlement program. And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of private sponsorship in uh, fostering broad public support for Canada's, Canada's resettlement program. You know, there was really important survey work done after the Syrian uh, movement to Canada in virtually every country around the world that had received large numbers of Syrians as refugees. There was a significant backlash uh, in terms of attitudes towards immigrants and refugees, in terms of support for refugee policy. Whereas Canada saw the opposite, there was actually growing support for refugees in Canada, uh, according to opinion polling done by Enveronics. And so you might say, well, why, why is that? I think my, now this is speculative, but I think part of it anyway has been the, the trust that the population feels in the resettlement process because there are people have personal connections to it. 
According to other survey data, uh, up to 25% of Canadians, either themselves, either they were in, involved in a sponsorship group or they personally knew somebody who was in a sponsorship group. And so what that means is that this is a it's a response to the potential for people to feel like the government doesn't have control the government is doing something without the consent of its population it fosters the uh the the sense that the canadians themselves own our our response to refugees and i think that's another really important condition that can't be taken for granted in the current global political climate and everything should be done that's possible to nurture and foster that public support. And I think, you know, the, the private sponsorship program is an important part of that. And the vitality of the private sponsorship program is dependent on on this provision for naming. And I, I think there there are pressures to to sort of downplay naming as an aspect of the program, which is the idea that sponsoring groups can choose who they bring to Canada. Uh, there are, you know, there have been all sorts of pilot projects that have been tried. Uh, that allow uh, you know UNHCR referrals uh, to sort of to assume a greater uh, part of the preponderance of the program. That certainly you know that that's that's desirable in one sense because it can help particularly vulnerable refugees. But I think if we're talking about maximizing the total capacity of Canada's resettlement program, we we cannot forget how important naming is to also maintaining the interest of sponsors in participating in the program. So. Those are less predictions than my observation that historically this program emerged out of a desire of, of sponsoring groups, uh, especially religious groups, to sponsor particular people. And that has remained at the center of, of the program and, and should not be compromised. Thanks so much, Jeff. I think that with your academic perspective and with Kaylee's practitioner perspective, we have now completed a full circle. We started with the role of religious groups in the early forms of private sponsorship in Canada and in the birth of the PSR program. We went through the current role of sponsorship agreement holders in the sponsorship ecosystem, and we also discussed the future of the program. I hope that our listeners find this conversation interesting and insightful, and I want to thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. Yeah, I just want to jump in and thank you both. That um, I, I always learn so much when I listen to and read your work um, and see you speak. So, yeah, thank you for such a wonderful conversation today. Thank you all. It was a joy to be here, and I'm so grateful for all the important research you're doing. Thanks again for the invitation. It was a pleasure to join you today. And to our listeners, stay tuned for our next episode.